Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today we have a few moments that Christian chose from the cantata Aus der Tiefen rufe ich Herr zu dir, BWV 131. This cantata is old. I mean it in a couple of different ways, actually. Of course, all this music is old, is like, relatively. <laughs> this is Baroque music. Yeah, this Bach's lifetime was 1685 to 1750. So the music that we have from him when he was pretty young is in the first decade of the 18th century. And then, of course, he wrote so much music throughout that first half of that century. But this uh, cantata was written in 1707 making it one of the earliest things we've talked about, and it is also one of his first cantatas. Probably written in 1707, maybe 1708. It puts him at like 22 or 23 years old. So it was one of his first choral pieces, but it shows absolutely no signs of immaturity. Yeah. In fact, it's a really advanced piece of music, and uh, like the other thing we looked at from this same era, when Bach had his church job when he was young in Mühlhausen at the St. Mary's Church, we did look at another cantata from this time period, and that one was Gotteszeit ist die allerbeste Zeit, and this one shares a lot with that, which we will unpack too. But I said this cantata was old, that doesn't mean a lot out of context, all these cantatas are old relatively. But this one is older, it's one of the first ones he wrote, but also I meant more than that too. This cantata is also using old styles of music. Later cantatas, Alex, a good example would be one of the first ones we looked at, the Wacht auf cantata. Yeah. Comes from later in Bach's life. By that time, he was already incorporating the more modern Italian opera trends into his vocal music. He was writing those recitatives in between things. We looked at one in our very second episode of this podcast. We looked at one of the recitatives. This is before all that and before Bach used that stuff. So these were more just traditional Lutheran cantatas. And because of that, they sound a lot less like they were music of the 1700s and a lot more like music of the 1600s. In fact, this stuff sounds really like 1600s music. And there are a couple of brilliant musical moments that have that really old style. Some of it has to do with the system of harmony, Alex, we were talking about as we were listening to this right before this, is that music didn't always used to be in major and minor keys. Right. It was in the collection of church modes, 
much more vague things and numerous. And then by the time around a little after 1600, people started using, uh, they started consolidating and using keys and tonalities that were major and minor. And it blossomed in past the Baroque era into the classical and romantic periods. And all of that common practice harmony comes from that. But here, Bach is already writing in a style that should be major and minor, but he's hearkening back to that old stuff. And speaking of that this is an old cantata, I mean something else too, which is that this cantata, the words, most of them are taken from the Psalms, specifically Psalm 130. Those are really old. Those come from the Old Testament, and because of that, they are you know thousands of years old. They are music biblically we don't have the notation the music notation yeah we just have the words from the hebrew and the translation into german here perhaps that's also why bach went for this more arcane style of, of music but also the netherlands bach society performance really highlights this right we just watched this uh alex and if you listeners you would encourage you to watch this whole video it's just so beautiful it's staged in that same church that we saw the Gotteszeit cantata in from the, that same concert it's the Oostkerk um, in the Netherlands. It's a beautiful performance venue for this early music. And also you'll see that just like that other cantata, there are two viola de gambas used here. But this time Bach didn't specifically call for them like he does in the other. This time uh, those two viola de gambas, those two people are playing the parts that are just written for two violas. But it, I mean, think of this, think of a modern orchestra string section, it has Violin one, violin two, two parts. Yeah. Then it has a part for violas, and then it has cello part. And if it's more modern, it has a separate double bass part. That's what an orchestra looks like after Bach's time and during. But in the early time of Bach and before him, it was much less standardized. And actually, uh, Bach liked to use two viola parts, two independent viola parts in his early music. That's kind of how you always know it's early Bach, is the two viola parts. Episode two, Nun kommt der Heiden Highland, two viola parts. Gotist Zeit, two viola da gamba parts. Both old cantatas. And also that violinist, in this case and in some other performances of this cantata too, it's just one violinist. And it's not a section of players playing together. One violin, one oboe. Right. He gives it a lot more of like a plaintive, kind of thin sound and that already the baroque violin sounds different than our modern violin mm -hmm. it's probably it sounds a little thinner the different the different strings and everything like that the, the way the bow is constructed and it just it has such a kind of keening quality almost to it kind of a sad quality to it yeah and the same can be kind of said for the baroque oboe which is more mellow than the brighter nasal modern oboe of today yeah same with the trumpet but you don't see that in this cantata but a lot of those Baroque instruments just happen to be more mellow. And since they're playing viola da gambas here, or violas da gamba, I guess you should say. <laughs> it's like attorneys general. Um, since they're playing violas da gamba, the old viol-type instrument that you play between your legs that they're reading viola parts on here, those instruments also sound much older, you know. Yeah. Then the way they, he staged the singers has part, partly to do with that too. It's a smaller ensemble. On one side, you have four soloists, which he uses for the solos and for some of the choral stuff too. Yeah. That's lighter, which we love. We've talked about this. We love how 
how they stage these things. And then sometimes for the bigger moments, they will bring in another four singers, which by the way, that's not easy. If you sing in a little choir and there's eight of you and you're singing four part music, that means that you're stuck with just one other person and to match perfectly with just one other singer, they both have to be really pros. Right, and and there's also the spatial side of that, which is the way that they've set this on this video in this concert would be even harder because he's got SATB over there and SATB over there, right? So it's, in other words, like the two sopranos aren't next to each other. In fact, they're as far as apart as they could be, the two sopranos are. Yeah, and to get into the music a little bit, we first see a section in the second movement in a solo movement where uh, suddenly those two sopranos enter on a Lutheran hymn tune. And when they come in with these long, soft background s- slow notes, the way they've done this with the Netherlands Bach Society is to have those two sopranos singing that, that melody. And they are opposed to each other like antiphonally in, the, in this performance space. And then it happens again later at the other solo. We have a tenor solo, but then we have two altos on either side. If you're looking at the video thinking that it is two men, that is correct because they are countertenors, but they're singing the alto part, which we've spoken about, that the Netherlands Box Society likes to use that particular color of the voice. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. These are the words for the first choral movement. And today, having introduced the piece a little bit, I'd like us to look at two of the five uh, moments I promised. So we talked about this, Alex, that we would release this episode a little specially in that instead of looking at just one musical moment after introducing a work, this one, which is so high up on my list of favorite cantatas of all time, I wanted to talk about one little thing in each of the five parts of this cantata. And in order to do that, uh, we're actually going to divide this episode in half. So uh, we're going to release this first part here with these first two moments. So then we'll look at parts three, four, and five next week. Something that was really fun was uh, watching this performance with Alex and making him guess what my moments would be. Yeah, and for each I wondered, movement, right? For each movement, and yeah. I wondered if he would do that, and he pretty much, he pretty much did. But to introduce it, we start with a sinfonia, that is, an instrumental introduction. And when the singers do start singing, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. Mm-hmm. 
you can really feel it. They're coming out of the depths. And then they rise up. To say that I cry to thee. And in one of the times that they say, Hrufa ich, I have cried, there is a remarkable moment where the voices enter one by one. That right there is not remarkable. Voices entering one by one happens all the time in this contrapuntal music. But they enter one by one in a stacked way where each voice comes in one note higher than the previous one. one thing you've got to do if you're going to pull this off to have each voice enter only a step apart and and separate like that is that the bass has to enter kind of high in their range tenor and alto middle range and then soprano has to enter kind of low in their range so that they all can be close enough to the notes right and then the other thing is they're all a whole step that's just doesn't really lend itself well to to the harmony and Bach you know in his typical elegant way of solving this kind of problem has the harmony kind of go really really out there and interesting for a second during that section has a chromatic in the bass it has a chromatic upward thing where it's just going up by half step and that against the entrances coming in in each successive whole step is really an unusual sound i I kind of struck me when i heard it and that's why i guessed it was going to be your moment christian and this chromatic thing going up to now that I'm looking at it here and now having heard the the rest of the cantata, I think it's an intentional call forward sort of. I mean, the last movement, which we'll get to next episode, um, that has a lot of these rising things in the bass that are chromatic, just like that. That's right. It's exceptionally emotional to have something moving chromatically by half step like this, just like we talked about last week. Yeah. With the chromatic, with the chromatic fantasia, same exact principle, except it's very dramatic to go up, especially I think with with half steps. It's it really calls out and sort of rings out painfully, whereas going down is kind of more sad and pathetic and I don't know, gloomy. I guess it's hard. To yeah, say. yeah, it's true. I mean, there, there's kind of an, it's almost an adage in like composing or just in music in general where like. Music that, that goes up in notes it kind of feels uplifting, and music that goes down feels sad, and it's more like tears or something, you know? And that's a really, really general way to say that, but it can be true. Mm-hmm. But here's an example of music that's going up, but it's 
it's not really uplifting. And that's because of the chromaticism. That's because of the sort of dissonance that's inherent in going up by half step, half step, half step. It's edgy sounding. It kind of sounds, eh, sounds a little anxious. Yeah. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. So the singer who's crying unto thee, the singer is in the depths and trying to claw their way out. You can almost hear it in the music. Yeah. And the the theme going on behind that is that out of the depths have I, a sinful human, a sinful human being, cried unto thee, which is God. And so the idea is one of remorse and supplication. I've been, I've done bad things. I have to be, I have to repent of them. I have to be sorry for them. And that's why I'm in the depths and I'm trying to claw my way out. Yeah. In the Bible, a lot of these Psalms have headings that say like it's a Psalm of David or it's a Psalm written for whatever occasion. Um, and this one, Psalm 130, it's a song of ascents. That is A-S-C-E-N-T, right? Like a song of rising. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure Bach knew that. Yeah, the point is to ask God for mercy and to remove that stain of sin away because it's not like a payment system where you've done a certain number of things wrong and you can pay for those with a certain number of the correct prayer or money right. or something. Exactly. And since Bach was a, a Protestant Christian, for him this made this the way to interpret this psalm is just like, out of the depths have I cried to thee because I sinned and everyone does that and everyone can't uh, can't be good enough to be perfect and that's why they all need God you know to have half steps going up in the bass line and then the singers singing parts that enter whole steps is just an absolute stroke of genius I don't know how he even pulls it off it's only a couple of seconds long But it works with all the parts. The bass voice does not, when it enters, it does not share the bass line. It's separate. And then the tenor voice enters in one note higher. Alto, soprano. Then yeah. they come together on Lord. And the bass then goes and jumps and shares the bass line. I mean, it's like, that's something we, we haven't talked about yet at all, but when Bach writes choral writing, whether it's four-part or five-part or whatever it is, the bass voice does not always match the, the basso continuo line, but sometimes it does. And um, bass singers who have sung Bach know this, and it's kind of cool because Bach just decides whether or not he, he wants to treat the bass voice as a separate voice to what the continuo is doing, which is like really the, ba the solid bass line of the song, right? Whatever's happening, that's the instrumental bass line. And sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. It depends on what he needs. And in this one, the bass singer, like you said, Christian, it, he's doing something with the rest of the, the vocalists, and it's not part of the continuo thing that's the half steps. And then later, he joins the continuo thing, just a couple measures later. It's interesting to, the question is always interesting how many separate parts are occurring in a piece of Baroque music like this. And if there's a choir, probably four at least. But like, like you said, Alex, sometimes the bass line, the instrumental bass line, is different for a while than the bass singer. So then there's five when that happens or however many there are plus anything else. Yeah, or sometimes the bassoon has a special part, which is going to happen later in the cantata. It does happen. It's unusual for yeah. the bassoon to have its own written out part, but it happens in this cantata. 
Yeah, does. usually the bassoonist will just double with the the basso continuo line, like mm-hmm. with the cello or whoever's doing that. But yeah, there's a couple of fun little bassoon parts yeah. later. So then the second movement starts. That's a bass solo. And like we said when we were introducing the piece, there is a hymn tune that is layered above it. And Alex, you pointed out that it's so amazing that when when that hymn tune comes in, there is a bass soloist's part, which sounds like it's in the foreground. One. That's one part. There's a bass line. Two, the bass continuo mm-hmm. part. And yeah. then there's that there is that hymn that comes in seemingly in the in the echoes of the background. So there's three, three. things. But there's also an oboe soloist with its own line. Four. Four. So there's actually four independent parts happening and they're not equal. They're, they each have a completely different job. Yeah. Baseline has its own supporting job, but also has the harmony that has chords with it. That the lute player and the organist you know, ever plays that. Yeah, and the bass singer has has what could be considered the main melody. The I guess. Solo, yeah. The solo, and then the oboist is kind of a response to that. It like jumps back and forth. Mm-hmm. Another soloist, except yeah. instrumental and not vocal, and way higher. So there's contrast, and then a completely separate function is that hymn tune in the background. Yeah, which com- makes comprised of these long notes. Mm-hmm. It makes it sort of a. Some people use, use the term chorale fantasia to describe this move, this kind of movement that yeah. happens here, because it is a chorale, and what's happening actually in the foreground to us is the fantasia, which is that, which is more um, free composition. Very different definition of fantasia from the one that we used last week, actually. Right. Because <laughs> it's not that free. Yeah. It's not as free as the chromatic uh, fantasia from last week. Yeah, but. As soon as we get to my moment from this movement, Alex knew exactly what it was. It happens. Yeah, this was one where I was like, what the? <laughs> it happens later. This, yeah, there are some moments that we pick on this podcast that we just love from from uh, for whatever personal reason or just the harmony is really great at one point or something just very beautiful. It's a really good excuse to talk about something. Like when we talked about the Magnificat, it was a very good time to introduce the Baroque trumpet. And sometimes that's the way we we run this podcast. But other times, other times, the moment is just so baldly, obviously, so wacky and weird that we can't not just notice it as its own moment. Yep. And this is one of those times, suddenly the bass singer, on that word, Fichte, Feared, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So on that word, suddenly the bass singer has this rhythm. Where he has we have we've been we've been having these flowing sixteenth notes, right? Ba da 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 four notes per beat. 
They're fast, but they sound perfectly normal and flowy and everything. Yep, and there's an accent on each beat, so every fourth note, so totally makes sense. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, the pattern of notes is three notes repeated, and we have da 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 da. That's just not, that does not sound like a classical music. It just doesn't no. sound like a, and I mean classical from like 1600 to 1900. That, what, that it doesn't. It sounds like a drum set rhythm or like a, yeah. uh, some sort of accent pattern, some sort of polyrhythmic accent pattern um, or some pop thing. It's just not, not at all. It doesn't yeah. sound at all like Western classical but, music. And it's because it, it's because of the relationship to the beat that currently is happening, right? So if it's, Da 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 one and a one e and a two e and a whatever or you can just think of it as one two three four one two three four one two three four it's just happening on the beat right but then it suddenly goes one two three 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 and then suddenly they're not on the beat anymore yeah it won't line up it won't end up syncing up at the end because if you just do the math if we have a measure of music that's four beats long and each beat can be divided into four sixteenth notes, then you have this why they're called this they're sixteen called? of yeah. them. But now we have a pattern that's going to not finish until I guess twelve. So over the course of three beats it they will they will overlap again. Right? The the four versus the three. Banta 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 So there's yeah. almost a polyrhythm going on here. A dissonance between the beat which is moving at four notes, four sixteenth notes per beat and then this other weird accent, which is moving at three sixteenth notes per beat. They're moving at different speeds. Yeah, you know what? Now that you say it that way, it kind of makes me realize why this is so weird. Um, besides just that it sounds you know, unusual for the time period. But composers of this time period did use hemiola, which means that you take something that's like three. You put two over three or three over two. But this is four over three. This mm-hmm. is like... It's more complicated. Yeah, and, and it's... Yeah, and the way that it's, I yeah, know, there's actually there's more to it than that too. But it's just, basically what I'm saying is, it's a really weird use of hemiola, if you can even call it that. Yeah, the idea of hemiola, by the way, it's just one of those music theory terms. But it's actually so simple and common in the Baroque period that you've heard it a million times, listener. Like in all of the pieces, the old pieces you've heard, it's been it's not actually very complicated. We say on this podcast, we admit that the Western music that we study on this podcast is very rhythmically simple in, in a way compared to music of other parts of the world. Yeah. And hemiola is interesting, but it's still really basic. I mean, there's hemiola occurs when you're in a triple meter and you have like a one, two, three, one, two, three going on. And the composer will take maybe just at this last moment before cadence, they'll take the last two measures and instead of, two units of three, bum, 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 bum. They'll ramp up the energy by making three units of two. Bum, 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 bum. That makes a really nice propulsion, switching from three to two for a second. Dun, 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 dun. You're like, I want to be in America. You know, that rhythm. right. And that's a hemiola, and it is a polyrhythm. And polyrhythms, which are really cool, musical devices is is two rhythms happening at once that kind of stuff is all over all different kinds of music but complicated polyrhythms are not a feature of baroque music 
Until now, I guess. <laughs> Except for here, yeah. And Bach never does this. I don't think, again, I've never heard anyone do this in this century or centuries. It's so strange. Yeah. Um, in in Bach's later years, I always gush over how much I lo- I'm obsessed with the early cantatas because of this st- kind of stuff. He really squares off, and his music is so wonderful in his later years, but is in some ways a little bit more conservative. And more, it's more consistent, I think. More consistent, and he, you know, he wrote a lot more, in, and he got he got much more of a regimen going. But it was in these early days, in his in his early twenties, that he would do something wild like this three against four thing. Absolutely remarkable, and it's definitely not. You could argue it's not that the singer is just singing. You know, still accented that way. But it's definitely not. It wasn't supposed to be that way no. because the way the notes repeat the Netherlands Bach Society performance, they do it justice. It is supposed to be rhythmically accented in a syncopated way. Yeah. Three against the prevailing four notes at a time. And the, the hemiola thing, right, that's three against two. That a unit which takes six small notes you know to complete is not such a big deal but three against four i mean then you're talking about a pattern that has to divide into 12 and the more you know the more complicated those ratios get the more interesting the the rhythm happens in whatever piece of music it's in sure and i hope some listeners can prove me wrong on this but i don't think there's I've ever heard anything like this in in this era in this era of music or the classical or the romantic era. This is not how rhythm worked at this time. Well, there's a little bit in Brahms. Um, there's a in the clarinet um, mm. oh, yeah. sonata. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's a thing where it's in four four. And it's like this, and it goes da 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 or something okay. like that. And it ever but it still got to be just like this when I heard it for the first time. I was like, whoa, Brahms do that? <laughs> like that sounds like modern. Brahms did, did do some really interesting things with detached rhythms from their meter. Yeah. and But that, that was unusual then too, though. Yeah. That's, yeah. And there's probably stuff earlier than Bach where things were a little bit more experimental in the oh, yeah. early 1600s where they were still getting their bearings with the second practice of the practice of figured bass. There was some improvisatory stuff in Italian, early Italian opera that maybe someone can prove me wrong about this, but or someone can prove to me that it did happen. That would be really cool, but I'm not sure. And now, here is that second moment. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of Aus der Tiefen Rufe Ich Herr zu dir, BWV 131, by the Netherlands Bach Society. And stick around for next week, 
in which Christian will share the rest of his uh, moments from this cantata. Three more for the next three movements. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. And listeners, if you are caught up on this podcast and you're hearing this episode as it's released, and you want to guess what my moments are going to be from movements three, four, and five, you could listen ahead. You could listen to the video and um, try to figure out what you think we're going to talk about for three and four and five. Yeah, see if you can guess like uh, as well as I did. You know, I kind of know Christian really well. So, but you might. Some of you might. There's some things that really stick out. I'll give you a hint. One of them is like a very obvious, just, it's just one moment. And then uh, another one is sort of anytime a, th- a certain really striking thing happens, you know. And then another one is more of just like a 30 second, 30 seconds worth. That's my hint. I'm not going to tell you which, which ones are which. It's appropriately vague. Yeah. yeah. But it'd be kind of fun to hear from some of you if you want to guess or um, tell us what you think about the ones we already did. All right. Sounds good. Until next time, enjoy those moments. <laughs> <laughs>